The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, o Christ. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. In Victor Hugo's sweeping novel, Les Miserables, the themes of misery and freedom, imprisonment and forgiveness run throughout. Jean Valjean, of course, is one of the main characters who, when we first meet him, has just finished up a 19-year sentence of hard labor for stealing to feed his sister. He's turned away from shelter everywhere he goes because of his ex-convict status. And over time, in doing this hard labor as a prisoner, he has become a bitter, angry man. When he is met by Bishop Muriel, who invites him to come into his own home and stay the night in a warm bed. Valjean cannot receive kindness, so rather than gratefully sleeping through the night, he steals the old man's silverware and takes off, only to be arrested. Valjean tells the police that he was given the silverware. Of course, they don't believe him, so they bring him back to the bishop's house, and Muriel tells them that he did indeed give Jean Valjean the silverware, and then he chides Valjean for forgetting to take the far more valuable candlesticks. Valjean is as confused and stunned as the police, who, with no crime for which to arrest him, simply leave. And then Hugo writes this. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. 
Interestingly, Valjean goes out immediately after that and steals money from a small child. But this time, rather than be consumed with bitterness and entitlement, he is overcome with grief and real repentance. And for the rest of the very long story, we see Valjean giving his entire life in service to others. He helps a destitute woman forced into prostitution by desperation. He rescues her child after she dies at great cost to himself, though the child is not his. He saves the lives of multiple strangers. And meanwhile, he is constantly being hunted by the lawman Javert. If Valjean represents grace at work, Javert represents a graceless law, a self-righteousness in the extreme. And Valjean puts himself at risk in Javert's path multiple times to help hurting, desperate, miserable people. Valjean has a complete rebirth from bitter criminal to sacrificially and actively seeking out those he can help. And in so doing, he gets crushed by the law of the world. This story of Jean Valjean chronicles for us the rhythm of Christian discipleship that is on display in the Beatitudes. Christ goes up to a mountain, a place of authority, and sets himself up as the new Moses and begins to teach the people. And what we realize after we consider these things for some time is that we go from poor, miserable, needy people who are met with grace. We're given the candlesticks in response to our vindictive thieving. But once we've been met with such overwhelming grace, we then turn to actively seek out others who are themselves miserable as we were once. But what we'll see is that as we are driven out into the world to help others, will actually be driven down by the powers of the world back into a posture of poor, needy, miserable people. The first section of the Beatitudes are sometimes referred to as the passive or need Beatitudes because they call blessing upon people in horrible situations, not because these people have done anything in particular, but simply because they are in need. Jesus says that it's the people with nothing to offer who get God's kingdom. It's the people undone with sorrow that get God's comfort. It's the people who recognize that they have no claim on anything that get God's green earth. Not exactly the Putins or Trumps or Clintons of the world. Notice with these first three Beatitudes, they're not really calling the followers of Jesus to do anything. These aren't spiritual conditions that have to be met in order to be given grace. Being poor isn't something you do. It's not even something you should want. It is something, though, that you should be willing to undergo for the sake of following Jesus. Same thing with mourning. The big takeaway from the first three Beatitudes is that God helps those who what? Not help themselves, but those who need help simply because they need help. In the fourth beatitude, there's a transition starting up as it is leading us toward something, toward wanting to be doers of God's will. But notice the grace even here. Jesus does not pronounce blessing upon the righteous. He pronounces blessing on those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What do hungry people lack? Food. What do thirsty people lack? Water. 
People who hunger and thirst for righteousness do so because they do not have any of their own. This signals a transition from the need beatitudes to what's been called the active beatitudes or the help beatitudes that then come back into what's called the hurt beatitudes. The help beatitudes require a lot of us, so much, in fact, that if we do them right, we will be hated and persecuted and so beaten down that we'll be right back to the beginning of need. We'll be back to being poor in spirit who mourn and hunger for God's righteousness. So Jesus tells us, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful has sometimes been translated as the misery-hearted. To put yourself in the path of others who are miserable, that's what it means to be merciful. This is at the very core of what it means to follow Jesus. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes the prophets saying that what God desires is mercy, not sacrifice. So if you're growing in Christian discipleship, and yet you find yourself getting harder on the weak sinners around you, you're growing in the wrong direction. As one theologian put it, the first test of obedience to Jesus is whether it make, he makes you mercifully softer. That's how you know you're truly following him. The merciful are those who come to the aid of the needy, who are not only prepared to take on their own troubles, but the troubles of others. It's costly. In the need beatitudes at the beginning, we were shown to be mercy poor, utterly lacking in spiritual riches, utterly devoid of righteousness. But now, it is the mercy full that are given blessing. Do you see that to follow Jesus is to defy a scarcity mentality? You can't grasp on to the little bit of mercy that you have been shown fearfully, hoping that it doesn't run out. You have got to run to show mercy to all, to open up the floodgates of mercy and realize that you will never be shown so much mercy in your life as when you begin to show mercy to others. You become a conduit of grace. You cannot store it up for yourself. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure at heart is to be clear at the center, which is to be centered on God. And this is a place where all the great philosophers and psychologists and psalmists agree. Being wholehearted is the key to being truly human. The more that you engage in a divided life, feeding the secret self, the shame spiral increases, cutting you off from living out in the open with wholeness. Look at the reward for the person who is blessed for this wholeness and centeredness upon God. They shall see God. Unheard of. No man may see God and live. Moses, the greatest man of the entire Old Testament, asked to see God and he was shown only his back. God had to protect him from his own burning presence. But later, Jesus will tell his disciples that whoever has seen him has seen the Father, and that it's the gifted Spirit who comes at Pentecost who will reveal the triune God to us. Notice in these last Beatitudes, there are things that followers of Jesus are called to do. It takes effort. Your will has to be engaged to be a a pure-hearted person, to be wholehearted, takes an incredible amount of work. It is not easy. 
in Hebrew anthropology and, and the way that they understood human beings and how they made their way in the world, the heart is the seat of all desires. It's the guts. It's the entire self. To be pure-hearted isn't just an internal purity. It's a full-throttled, full-bodied purity. It is all of you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This flows out of being wholehearted because the Jewish idea of peace isn't simply a lack of conflict, it's wholeness. It's everything being in its right place in harmony with all the other parts, relating rightly to each other. Being of a pure heart propels us out into the world to work for peace, to bring justice to those that are denied it, To be a peacemaker is to be a reconciler among your neighbors. It includes not spreading bad information, but it's so much more than that. But also notice it is not peace at any cost. Being a peacemaker does not mean you are spineless. The ministry of Christ himself was marked with division, severing families and communities. The same is true now. To truly follow Christ as a peacemaker actually, paradoxically, brings about the persecution spoken of in the very next beatitude. Working for peace is not making daisy chains. It is hard work. Intervening in the mistreatment of the miserables in the world at the hands of the greedy, the proud, and the double-minded will often result in the mistreatment of the one doing the intervening. Of Jesus and his forerunner, John the Baptist, they said they were either too liberal or too conservative. Gluttons and teetotalers. To follow Christ is to live a paradox that confounds and sometimes enrages our onlookers. But Jesus says that this too is blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that he's brought us full circle? The kingdom of heaven belongs both to the poor in spirit and to those who become filled with a righteousness not their own and are therefore persecuted. But Jesus goes on and makes it even more personal. He switches out of the third person and says directly to his hearers, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are living in an age of near constant anxiety and increasing anger toward and fear of the other. And it actually doesn't matter what sides you might place yourself on politically. Almost everyone has ratcheted up their fear of the people on the other side in the last weeks, days, and months. Tribalism and xenophobia have begun to rear their ugly heads again, and they will not be coaxed back into the corner by toothless calls for love, whatever that might mean in our culture. What is needed 
is communities of people who really live the way of the Beatitudes, the way of Christ. Not just individuals, but communities. What if we really lived this way? What if we really understood ourselves fundamentally as poor, needy, helpless, hungry, unrighteous people who have been met with a tidal wave of grace? What if we became a community so single-hearted in our pursuit of the vision of God that we began to pour ourselves out for the misery-hearted around us, regardless of the cost? To follow Jesus is not to wander aimlessly in a world of victory. There is a deep ambivalence in following him because in a real way, you are being made alive in him while dying to yourself. This is not easy. It's grace, yes, but it's a grace that requires death. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. In a moment, you'll be invited to the table to taste broken flesh, bitter wine, to understand what your need required so that we would begin to reorient our idea of ourselves to know that we are those poor in spirit. We are those who lack and to increase your hunger so that we would go out into the world and continue to die like Christ for our neighbors, for the miserable. Come in a moment and feast. Take heart for the journey.